Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. I'm Brian Lee Crowley, Managing Director of the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and I'm joined today by Dr. Christopher Sands. Chris is a Senior Research Professor and Director of the Centre for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University in the School of Advanced International Studies. Previously, he, st- he taught as the G. Robert Ross Distinguished Visiting Professor uh, in the College of Business and Economics at Western Washington University from 2012 to 2017, and as an adjunct professor at the American University uh, School of Public Affairs from 2005 to 2012. And before his uh, academic career, he worked for more than 20 years in Washington, D.C. think tanks, including the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the Hudson Institute. More important than any of those things, Chris is a member of the Macdonald Laurier Institute's Research Advisory Board, and I am delighted to welcome you, Chris, to Pod Bless Canada. I'm delighted to be on. I, I'm a listener, and it'll be nice to be on this side of the microphone for a change. Fantastic. Well, Chris, it's a great time to be a Canadianist in Washington. Yeah, I've, I have. I, you're you're often uh, in the media and so on, talking about Canadian issues, but never more than in the last few months. Tell us a little bit about the rising level of interest in Canadian issues in Washington. Well, I have three factors that are working in my favor. When I started watching Canadian relations, my one of my uncles sarcastically referred to it as being the Maytag repairman of international relations. And normally it's a very quiet field, but with the NAFTA renegotiation, but also with calls for more NATO defense spending and other demands that the U.S. is making of of Canada, uh, there's great interest. There's a second factor that works in my favor, and that is when NAFTA comes up, it's easy to find a Mexico expert. And everybody says, well, we have to have a Canada expert, but there aren't that many of us. And so I probably get a little bit more play than I'm really entitled to. And then thirdly, we have this wonderful development in that the small community of Canada watchers includes one of McDonald Laurier's uh, senior fellows, Laura Dawson at the Woodrow Wilson Center, Scotty Greenwood, who runs the Canadian American Business Council. And so with this proliferation, I actually count as diversity, which for a boring white guy doesn't always work. Uh, so that's given me a good play, more than I'm used to. Just for the benefit of those listening to the podcast, how, how did you get interested in Canada? Much as Canada looms large in the imagination of Canadians, we know it does not loom large in the imagination of Americans. How did this come about? Well, it's interesting and related to the news of the day. I, I was interested in international political economy. And in the 1980s in American political science, political economy was moving from sort of a Marxist dominated field, which never quite took off in the U.S. because of that uh, Marxist link to becoming a much more Hobbesian field in which you didn't assume that big multinational corporations and large governments were in cahoots, but actually might be at each other's throats. And we were doing interesting case study work on things like why the U.S. has a sugar quota and why are these things so resistant to change? That really excited me. The cool kids, of which I was not one, were looking at Europe moving towards the single European Act in 1992 and not being cool, uh, but being from Detroit originally, having visited Canada often as, as a kid, I thought, well, maybe some of what we have in North America is interesting in its own right. And if the auto pact and the defense production sharing agreement hadn't created a North American union, that's fine. It was a different course, but it was also interesting that you have some of the same foundational elements in a similar period of time, and you you have a very different uh, evolution of things. 
I was lucky enough to be an undergraduate when the Canada US Free Trade Agreement was negotiated, and then a graduate student in Washington when the North American Free Trade Agreement was negotiated. So now I'm just sort of reliving my college days, thinking about some of those same issues, but, uh, but that's what got me interested. Given your background as uh, a Canadianist in Washington, watching the NAFTA renegotiation, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, people listening to this podcast, uh, if they're typical Canadians, are a bit mystified by what's going on in Washington. I mean, Canadians like to tell themselves that they know more about America than anybody else in the world. But my own sense would be that, you know, even people in the media and so on are finding it difficult to understand uh, or, or even to get any kind of insight into America's behavior in the, in the NAFTA negotiation. So let's see if we can unpack that a little bit. Sure. I think the 2016 election surprised many people, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., in that it revealed to certainly the inside of the Beltway, uh, Washington, D.C. establishment, that there was a large body of the American public that didn't trust the establishment wisdom, the experts, uh, the commentariat. And they wanted, they, they wanted to re-examine things like trade liberalization and barrier reduction because they felt they had been paying the price of U.S. global leadership unduly. That's partly a trade issue, but that's also partly a military issue. It's the flyover country, as people sarcastically call it, that provides us with most of our, our troops. And we had seen a number of conflicts that hadn't had uh, that sort of positive feeling of outcome that we had after World War II. You think certainly of Vietnam, but also of the Iraq conflict. So with, with a lot of frustration that Republicans and Democrats in Washington, while they had ideological differences, were still driving us hand in glove on this road. Even President Obama, who campaigned against NAFTA, became a proponent of the TPP and expanding trade agreements. I think there was there was a feeling that many Americans weren't being listened to. And the genius of American democracy is there's always a, someone who capitalizes on those gaps. And we have Donald Trump, maybe not the person any of us would have picked, well, I guess the voters picked for him, but maybe a bit rough around the edges and so on. But he is delivering what I think a lot of a lot of Americans want, which is change quite ferociously, actually. And and the pace at which we're revising tax policy, revising health care, addressing trade negotiations, dealing with not just Canada and Mexico, but China and European Union. Everyone's involved. Everything's up for grabs is a little disorienting, but it, it, it's been the kind of change that's coming. Now, what's interesting to me is how that affects Canada-US relations. As you know, because you've watched Canada-US relations for a long time, our pattern of handling Canada-US relations has been to take political agreements where the prime minister and the president agree on how things should be handled, and then putting them into an institution that no longer needs a political investment of capital to get things done. The classic example, of course, is the NORAD agreement on 9-11, when a Canadian commander is in charge, there really is no need to call the president or find the prime minister. He knows that his job is to secure the airspace. And if commanders want to close it down because we didn't know if there were any other planes, that's what happened. It happened seamlessly and quickly, and it's, it's how things are supposed to work. We think of the International Joint okay. Commission, uh, another fine institution that deals with boundary waters, the Great Lakes, water quality, and it has some constraints. It, it, it acts only when it's given a, a sort of a warrant by the foreign ministries, but that's one of the ways we've avoided the democracy deficit that the Europeans suffer, because all of the institutions are subordinate to our sovereign, our sovereign democratic political institutions. NAFTA 
you might think of this in the Donald, uh, in the Douglas North of the Ronald Coase sense, is is a bit of an institution itself. It doesn't have, it has a secretariat, it has side agreement institutions, but it is more than that. It's an idea that we are integrating our economies on which investors and others act. What's so disorienting now is that the very institutions that have structured our relationship, that have made it non-political, are being shaken up by the Trump administration. And the people to whom Canadians have looked, leading members of Congress, some of whom were still around when we passed Canada's Free Trade and NAFTA, seem very unbalanced by this. They're not necessarily championing the Canada-US relationship in the way that we're used to. Canada's worked hard on governors and others trying to remind them that there is a way we do things and this isn't it. I always hear Canadians say, you know, the only thing worse than being ignored by the United States is by having the United States take you seriously and put the attention on you. And Donald Trump certainly has. And if you go back to our Canada's free trade and after negotiations, we, he even breaks the rules of protocol on the way we negotiate. Because normally the president and the prime minister confidently express their you know, enthusiasm for the trade and that we will come to an agreement in the fullness of time. And then you have people like Simon Reisman or now Robert Lighthizer, who are you know, tough guys who say all the most horrible things, but mostly we don't have to watch it. And those those conversations are now out in public. We're still hearing from negotiators and social media brings that quite immediately home to us. But the president is is referring to the prime minister derogatorily talking about Canada. There are very few tariffs Canada has on any American goods, but dairy is one of them because in the Uruguay round, we converted quotas into tariffs and that was part of what we agreed to. So it's there, it stands out. And, and, and we're zeroing in on this. Trump is talking about how very badly Canadians are treating Americans, which most Canadians don't think is true. And so it's a very disorienting time. And, and that shaking up of institutions, the loss of the, of the niceties of the way we talk to each other, I think has left us all feeling a bit shaken and stirred. So I, I very much liked what you said about um, the Canadian strategy of working, for example, with members of Congress as a way to exert pressure on the American political system in opposition to where Donald Trump is trying to take, for example, the mm-hmm. NAFTA negotiations. And indeed, uh, uh, MLI had a, an event uh, earlier this year where um, Pete Sessions, who's the chairman of the House Rules Committee and you know one of the leaders of the uh, uh, Republican establishment in Congress, uh, was here uh, basically pouring oil on troubled waters and saying, <laughs> "Look, Canada, you know Congress is not going to uh, let you be hung out to dry, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But uh, I have heard, and you're much closer to this than I am, that um, the people who are actually conducting the negotiations, of course, are not Congress; it's the administration. It's the president and his trade representative. And that Canada's strategy of essentially trying to do an end run around them by traveling the country and talking to governors and members of Congress and so on, getting them all to say Canada is our best friend, has perhaps not been the wisest strategy. That if you consider the effect it's had on the people you actually have to negotiate with, it's had a negative effect on Canada's ability to push its agenda forward. Is that an unfair characterization? Uh, No, I don't think it is. Although I think it would be unfair to say that this was some sort of political malpractice or diplomatic malpractice by by the government of Canada. The Congress governors, others have acted normally. When Canada calls, so oh, how nice, some Canadians, and they'll listen. And Canada made a lot of progress by talking to all of those individuals over, not, not just the government of Canada, but opposition leaders from Ottawa and provincial premiers and provincial politicians sending out a message that was 
at the broadest level, Canada's trade is mutually beneficial. And we're here to tell you just how much it helps you. And we'd like to continue it. It was, it was not meant to be uh, in the negotiations, wheeling and dealing on specific items. It was just a broad message of, of goodwill and, and, and trying to raise the profile of the stakes that are involved in shaking up the trade relationship. But the administration has been, from the beginning, focused on Congress because of the nature of the trade promotion legislation that was passed in 2015 for the Obama administration originally, but with enough time left on it that Donald Trump decided to use that trade negotiating authority for for NAFTA renegotiation and everything else. And that legislation, the Bipartisan Congressional Trade Priorities and Accountability Act of 2015, is the most interventionist uh, legislation by Congress since the Trade Act of 1974. We've never seen anything like this. Certainly when we negotiated Canada Use Free Trade and NAFTA, Congress was much more hands-off. But they have asked for regular reports, briefings. Normally there are key committee leaders that matter. The legislation created trade advisory committees in the House and the Senate to which any member can join. So there have been multiple groups that Lighthizer has been asked to brief, give updates for, and so on. Robert Lighthizer, who people don't think of the, these kind of characters who've been around Washington a long time as being very important. You focus on Donald Trump because he's, he's, he's the larger figure. But Robert Lighthizer was uh, part of, has been part of U.S. trade politics for a long time. He was deputy U.S. trade representative during the Reagan administration when NAFTA, when Kennedy's free trade was beginning. He also served as Robert Dole's advisor on trade in the 1996 election when Dole challenged Bill Clinton. And in that election, you might remember, I don't know if your memory of these obscure details goes back that far and you're still a young man, but there was, Bob Dole said in 1996, we've just had the Uruguay around and the NAFTA. And we think we've had enough of trade agreements. We need to digest these and see how they work before we go on and negotiate new things. And that's very much where Lighthizer was. And so he's always very keen on the importance of Congress and what it takes to, to fight to get something ratified at the end of the day. And for all the chaos that we've associated with the Trump administration, and you see all, thing, all sorts of things on cable television all the time, they've never missed a deadline or a requirement for a report filing, for a phone call, for a briefing from the beginning of this process a little more than a year ago to today, which shows there's a discipline beneath the crazy that is is telling you what's important for the U.S., which is that Congress is playing a role. In a backhanded compliment to Canada's strategy, a few months ago, back around May, you saw uh, President Trump saying, you know, the Canadians come down and they talk to everybody. They're pretty smooth. That wasn't meant to be a front-handed compliment. Canada's really quite good at this. It was more, don't trust them. They're smooth. They're slick. They're slimy. They, they're going to give you a bill of goods. Don't trust them. Trust us. But it was a sign that Donald Trump was hearing from members of Congress and governors about the importance of Canada's trade and having Canadian data quoted back at it. So that, I think, was all to Canada's credit. You, did, you played the game very well. They took you seriously in both White House and USTR. Uh, however, the most recent phase in the negotiations, you've noticed that Christy Freeland, the Canada's foreign minister, has been careful to say we're negotiating in the room now, not in the press. I think that's a sign that we've gotten to a serious phase. But I discount the idea that because Canada might have been busy talking to others, uh, some called it a donut strategy of going around the White House, that it was costing Canada politically. I think it ruffled some feathers. But uh, one thing you can tell about Donald Trump is he's used to having his feathers ruffled by a lot of people and he ruffles back, but he is not uh, easily intimidated. And so I think uh, there's some respect for Canada having tried that and maybe it worked. I think it can't have hurt really. Mm. So uh, you've 
talked about uh, the current state of NAFTA negotiations. Again, there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty in Canada about deadlines. What's a real deadline? What's a manufactured deadline? Um, you know, what's the framework we're working within here? And I also want to talk about uh, what I think the outstanding issues are. But let's let's talk about deadlines first. So, is there a real deadline here? I, I understand the Mexicans have some political deadlines. I understand that. Canada's uh, negotiators have one eye on the Quebec election, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What are the, the, the real and the imaginary deadlines here? Well, first of all, in trade negotiation, one thing worth recognizing is that you need deadlines because uh, as we find with the WTO rounds that go on for a decade, if there aren't hard deadlines, people can just talk themselves in circles. So there has to be something to force people to make the concession or the compromise that gets a deal. So that's understandable. There are two kinds of deadlines, though, that we're dealing with. One are political deadlines that are either set by politicians or, or have their origin in, in some sort of political calculus. You mentioned the Quebec election and a concern about when the text of a U.S.-Mexico or even a U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement comes out and how it might affect the election. That's the case in Mexico for sure because the new Mexican president-elect, who is a bit of a NAFTA skeptic himself, has made an agreement with the establishment in Mexico that he'll seek the ratification of anything done before he comes in, but that if it's not done before he comes in, then he wants to see it at the table and he is a critic and he may want to change things. So the Mexicans have been rushing to meet a deadline to have the agreement signed on the 30th of November, which is the day before the December 1st inauguration of the new president. Now that may look like a process deadline, but it is a political deadline. And um, if, for example, and it's just one of the many scenarios, we have a U.S.-Mexico agreement that's, a, that's signed by the end of the week and we uh, haven't finished everything with Canada, it's possible that the Mexican president would say, well, as long as you don't change anything on the U.S.-Mexico front, if you want to keep talking to Canada, we don't have any beef on Canada. So go ahead. It's a political agreement. He just has to just reassess that himself. And if it doesn't affect Mexico, I, I, I wouldn't think he would be opposed, but we'll see. The other kind of deadline, though, are process deadlines that are stuck in the law. There was one that was very important towards the end of June, and that was that the president's trade negotiating authority from 2015 expired on July 1st of 2018. However, if the president requested up to a three-year extension one time, he could have it, provided no member of Congress objected. So when uh, we were talking in May and we had some sense of, of a deadline because Speaker of the House Paul Ryan in the United States had said that he needed to have a deal by the, I think, March, May 18th or May 20th in order to have enough time for the 115th Congress, which was the current one, to ratify the agreement, even in the lame duck in December, uh, the lame duck session. Having passed that deadline, I think people were saying, well, you know, what, what's, what's real here? That was also a political deadline. But having passed that deadline, the president immediately requested um, an extension of time. He now has until 2021 on the current trade promotion authority. That is a hard deadline as well, uh, because when that ends, there's no possibility of an additional extension. There'll be new trade promotion legislation. So a U.S.-Canada deal has to be done and presented to Congress before July 1st, 2021. That gives you a lot of running room. In the trade promotion legislation, then, there are 
little micro process deadlines. And one of them is that when you notify Congress, you're going to send a deal to them within 90 days, 30 days later, you have to post the text so that the U.S. International Trade Commission can assess it. They can begin work on a, a number of the impact assessments before Congress even takes a look at it. That's a real deadline. And that's what's driving the desire for a published text this week, which will be published on the USTR website. So it'll be open for any Canadian to take a look at and, and see, even if it's a U.S.-Mexico deal and doesn't include Canada. Now, our understanding is that they're putting little sticky notes on the text saying, you know, insert Canada here, hoping that they can get a deal by the end of the week. But if they miss it, the only consequence is that on November 30th, the US and Mexico will be able to sign a deal. But Canada, if it's added after, most likely would have to be added with another 60-day notice before the signing ceremony. I don't think that's terrible because at the end of the day, Congress is the only judge of all these timelines. And Congress has to pass implementing legislation. It's not a treaty with a one vote. It has to be multiple bills. And my suspicion is that most congressional leaders, Republican or Democrat, since many of the provisions they need to change in U.S. law are the same for Canada and the Mexico deal, would just prefer to combine them all and do it all at once. So if we have a delay, Canada's deal doesn't come together until, say, the end of October, um, hopefully, then you, you would just have a second signing ceremony and everything would go to Congress in due course. Congressional midterm elections are November 6th. That Congress will not be sworn in until January. So that would be the earliest that the 116th Congress would pick this up. They have put no timeline on themselves, that is Congress, between when they receive this package from the White House and when they begin the process of ratification. It is an open period. Once they do submit the the legislation, then there's a 90-day clock on the whole congressional ratification process, and it becomes quite hasty. But that middle especially if Canada's not in a U.S.-Mexico deal, Congress may decide that they want to take their time. And they're not going to pick this up until they see both both together. This will prove, in a weird way, that Canada was right to work Congress, that Congress is, under the Constitution, responsible for trade policy. They cannot be ignored, and that they may be the ones that, in the end, keep Canada in the deal, whether it's what Trump wants or, or whether what they're able to negotiate uh, as trilateral, maybe two bilaterals that get merged later on. Thanks very much, Chris. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to part one of a two-part podcast uh, from the McDonald-Laurie Institute, where I've been talking to Chris Sands, who is a member of the McDonald-Laurie Institute's Research Advisory Board, and he's a senior research professor and director of the Center for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Washington. Uh, Please join us for our next podcast on Pod Bless Canada, where we'll be doing the second half of my chat with Chris Sands. Thanks very much for listening.